0: Well, it was about 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ when the Kingdom of Israel had separated from the Kingdom of Judah for about 200 years and the Kingdom of Israel was enjoying a period of great wealth, peace and security. This was the historical background to the prophet Amos. If you're turning your Bibles with me to Amos... So Amos, it's page 924, 924. We will be reading a fair slab of it during this sermon, so it would be very helpful if you could have it open in front of you, page 924, page 924. And on the back of the sermon outline, you'll see just that little map there. Israel has beaten their neighbours. Phoenicia, Ar- Aram-Ammon, Moab, Judah, Felicia. Israel was the top dog in Palestine. And the king Jeroboam II had been ruling for a long time. And there wasn't the usual assassination plots and internal conspiracies. But Israel didn't see the rising storm clouds on the horizon, the growing imperial power and ambitions of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. Within 20 years, Assyria was going to destroy Israel. The 10 northern tribes of Israel were going to be lost forever, never to be reconstituted, and Israelites would be scattered all over the ancient world, all over the Assyrian Empire. But at the time Amos is writing, 20 years before this incredible national disaster, Israel was full of wealth and 20 years. Well, can we see what's going to happen in 20 years? Could we confidently predict what's going to happen in 2032? It's such a long way away. Who can guess what will happen? Who can guess what technology will change? What our lifestyle will be like? Who could guess? You go back 20 years, you don't have Facebook, that's a blessing. You don't have a whole set of other things, emails are not really functioning properly. I mean, the world was different just in the last 20 years. Who knows what's gonna happen in the next 20 years? Who would have imagined the falling of the nations in, uh, in the Middle East uh, along the African borders, the, the Muslim nations that have fallen in the last couple of years? Who was going to guess that was going to happen 20 years ago? Israel couldn't see what was going to happen. Last week we read of the judgment of the nations in chapter 1, pronounced by the prophet Amos as he worked his way around Palestine. Condemning the nations for their inhumanity. Announcing that all Israel's neighbours and enemies were going to be destroyed by Yahweh. One by one they're listed for us in chapter 1. As he speaks of the destruction of Aram to the north and, and, and he speaks of Philistia and Phoenicia and Amnon and Moab. They're just going to be destroyed because they are living in opposition to God's ways. And with this message, Amos couldn't help but be one of the most popular prophets of all time, one of the most most popular prophets of doom that Israel had ever entertained. You can imagine the Israelites listening, thinking, this is great news. Yes, get them, God. Yes, them and them and them. It is a great message for Israel that their nations are all going to get it in the neck. And then Amos turns his attention to their nearest neighbour and their closest relative with the judgment on Judah in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Here were the people who worshipped the same God, but they were always superior, those stuck-up Judahites. They claimed to have the, the real, true royal family of David. They claimed to have the real temple of Solomon. They claimed to have the... To be in the chosen city of God in Jerusalem. But just as with all the other nations, they too are coming under the wrath of God for their sins. Mind you, their sins are slightly different, for their sins are not the sins against humanity, their sins are the sins against God's law, against God's contract or covenant with them. Look with me in chapter 2 verse 4, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. The patience of God was running out. The sins of the people had been persistent and the fire of Yahweh's judgment would come upon them just as it came upon the pagan nations around. Still, hearing this message, your average Israelite could rejoice in this punishment as well. It was right, it was just, it was fair, and it was not us. But then the boom finally lands on Israel, and frankly, the rest of the book right through the end of chapter 9 is now going to be about Israel. A paragraph for this nation, a paragraph for that nation, two verses for Judah and a whole book against Israel. For that is the burden of the message of God given by his prophet Amos that Israel, the northern ten tribes, is about to be destroyed and in fact later it was destroyed. Let me take you quickly through the argument of the next two chapters, all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, before returning to make some general comments about the prophecy of Amos and us. So we start at chapter 2 verse 6 and the national unrighteousness of Israel. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Here are the people, the people of God, religious and immoral, heartless and ruthless, greedy, hedonistic materialists. It sounds like my usual description of Sydney in the 21st century. That was the character of God's people though. It is contrasted in verses 9 to 12 with God's righteousness for God has been with them rescuing them out of Egypt and giving them the land of the wicked Amorites. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But... You made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. See, God had destroyed the wicked and degenerate Amorites, given the land to Israel, and given them prophets and holy men, the abstemious Nazarites. But the people of Israel had not only defiled these Nazarites by forcing them to drink, but also silenced the prophets. And so we read in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, of the judgment to come. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight will perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself nor shall he who rides the horse save his life and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. They'll be crushed and none shall escape. The swift, the strong, the warrior, the cavalry, none of them will be able to escape the judgment of God when it comes. And this judgment of God is inevitable for it will of a certainty come upon them because the privilege and responsibility are always tied together. As Jesus warned over 700 years later, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they were entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Amos here warns in verse 1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They had been given much, And much would be required of them. For they were the only nation that was God's nation and therefore, rather than avoiding punishment, their punishment was all the more inevitable. And this inevitability is spelt out for us in verses 3 to 8 with a series of images of two things that always go together. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has nothing? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when he has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And the two things that inevitably are going together in this case is Israel's sin and the Lord's punishment. And so in verses 9 and 10, it's spelled out how, how obvious is Israel's sin, before turning in verse 11 to 15 to the inevitability of God's punishment. Israel is, by calling upon the Philistines and Egyptians to come and witness this, obviously sinful. Even the pagans, the Egyptians, the Philistines from Ashdod, When they look, they will see that you are indeed sinful. Verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. How galling it was when the enemies of God's people are able to see the wickedness in God's people more clearly than God's people could see or know themselves they're at war with each other oppressing their own people storing up violence and robbery and worst of all not knowing how to do right and the Lord's punishment is given to us in verses 11 to 15, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defences from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as with a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and a part of a bed hear and testify against the house of Jacob declares the Lord God the God of hosts that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground I will strike the winter house along with a summer house and the house of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end declares the Lord Well, we must never expect a prophet of doom to be a happy read. It is hard going through the book of Amos although there are very very important lessons to learn and there is a very bright ending to the book of Amos all the brighter because of how dark the other chapters have been. For this proud wealthy powerful nation is going to be overwhelmed by such violence that there'll only be a bit of a couch and a bit of a bed left the mighty nation that is coming against them is in reality God coming to punish them for their transgressions and that punishment will destroy the religious altars the wealthy affluence the summer houses the winter houses the ivory houses the great houses they're all going here is the burden of Amos the prophet so what can we learn now from this message of the roar of the lion see back at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1 verse 2 of just turn back the page you'll see he said the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the pastures of the shepherds mourns and the top of Carmel withers And now over in chapter 3, verse 8, again God is likened to a roaring lion. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? For when God's voice roars out like this, what can we do but speak? It was not as if Amos had a choice of whether to prophesy or not to prophesy, He didn't tailor his message to the kind of desires of today, he's not like a politician going out and doing the polls, finding out what people want and then standing up and telling them that that's what we're going to give you, as if that is leadership when you follow the poll. He's not like that. God has spoken. With all the force and power of his voice, God has spoken and when God speaks, the prophet can do nothing else than say what is said. The sheer terror of God's word drove him to tell the message of dire warnings. It was like the earthquake that came a couple of years later. I don't know if you've been in an earthquake or not but I guarantee you can tell me about it. For who can experience an earthquake and not tell people about it? The noise, the roar the shaking, the violence, the destruction, you have to tell people. Even the people with whom you shared the experience, they all stand around telling each other of what they've had. You just can't keep quiet about that roar. And this roar of God is his warning. And while it's dark and nasty and you don't want to hear it, The other hand of course it is very loving it is very generous it is very kind for it's telling you to get out of trouble to avoid the problem to face up to the difficulty it's the kind thoughtful generous warning of the judgment that is to come for notice in verse 7 of chapter 3 he tells us that God doesn't act without telling his prophets For God is not temperamental or fickle. It's not God losing his temper with us or acting quickly and precipitously out of some kind of peak. It's not as if God had a bad night's sleep. God is always just in his anger, preferring to forgive than to punish and so warning his people to change their ways, to repent, to return to him for he would rather a sinner repent and live, as he said in his prophet Ezekiel some 150 years later after this. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather he should turn from his way and live? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So what secrets does God tell his prophets before he acts? He tells them his secrets of what has happened. And of what is happening. And so by inevitable implication, what must happen? If you know what has happened, and if you know what is now happening you can see what will happen next. What has happened is that he rescued and established this nation and defeated their enemies and gave them their land to live as a holy nation. And what is happening is exactly what he warned them against in Deuteronomy. The nation has forgotten the God who has given them the land. The nation has departed from his ways, repeating the idolatry of their enemies, abusing and oppressing each other, ignoring the law and the Lord. And so what must happen? Well, as he destroyed the other nation before them, as he is going to destroy the other nations around them, so he will destroy this nation, his nation, for its evil way. The second lesson we learn about the roar of the lion is that wealth is a deceptive security. We live in 21st century Australia and of course that is very different to ancient Israel. Different because Israel was God's chosen nation or part thereof, set up to fulfil God's plan to bring the salvation to the world by the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Australia is not God's nation. Australia is just another nation amongst the many nations of the world. Across the world today and down the history of nations that have come and gone, we are but just another one. We are not central to the plans of God. We haven't been built on a divine constitution. And we are not the nation through whom God is going to save the world. We are a very different nation to Israel however, in what God does to his own nation, we see the character of his justice and the need to pay careful attention to how we live as a nation. From chapter 1 we saw that God is the sovereign ruler and judge of all nations, not just those who acknowledge him, not just Israel that he judges and punishes nations for their basic inhumane evil, whether they acknowledged him or not. Now we see that he is no respecter of persons. He's not partial. He shows no favoritism. His people have greater opportunity to know his ways and that only increases their guilt and responsibility. To those who have More is required, not less. We Australians, we know more than they did, for we live in the year of the Lord, 2012. And therefore, Australia must be more careful. Our nation was built on a British culture, heavily influenced by the gospel of Jesus, as such, it is called by Donald Horne, the historian, the lucky country, not meaning lucky because we've got minerals here and minerals there, but lucky because we have had, not had to go through the civil wars, we haven't had to go through the struggles and fights, of. we inherited a culture already set up for us. But Amos' description of Israel is such a description of Australia and Sydney in the 21st century we are so overwhelmingly confident with so little reason for our pride. In fact, as Donald Horne really put it, Australia is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck. That's the full quote not often given when people talk about us as the lucky country. When we use the phrase, the lucky country, we generally mean it as a positive thing. It's great to be an Australian. We live in the lucky country. But the man who invented the phrase meant it as a totally negative thing. We don't deserve what we have. We've inherited it. And we are second-rate people who share its luck. Under Jeroboam II, Israel was in wealth and power, stability and security, just like us, but unparalleled in its long history. Jeroboam had ruled for 40 years, hardly any king had lived that long to rule that long, having conquered all his enemies. And there are still signs of his wealth that we find today. Here, for example, is a little seal that was dug up in Samaria. Its inscription is belonging to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam and its picture so telling for Amos is that of a lion. They lived as if God did not provide life, they lived as if life was to be found in bread instead of every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Just as we Australians, our wealth comes from It used to be the sheep's back and then it was other agriculture then it was our minds and that's where it is at the moment it's our minds that's where our wealth is coming from if we believe that how foolish we are the world economy can take our wealth out of our minds overnight they ignored and forgot the message of Deuteronomy 8 they forgot the God who gave them everything And in their power and in their wealth, they thought as Deuteronomy warned, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And that is how Australians think. We certainly don't think we've got it by robbing the Aborigines of anything. And so they abused the poor they played at cultural religion, they practiced sexual immorality, and they ran after other gods and became overwhelmingly proud, shutting their ears to the message of the prophets, refusing to listen to God's word. You can't read Amos. Sorry, I can't read Amos without thinking of our nation, for it is so similar to the nation of Israel. We must remember that God's patience is not eternal. As if he would never bring us to judgment. As if we're always going to live with such wealth and peace. As if our nation could go, and never go the way of other Our empire, our commonwealth, never go the way of commonwealths. As if God doesn't exist, as if God doesn't... Remember how quickly... The might of the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the 1980s. For 70 years, the USSR looked invincible. It scared us when they put Sputnik up. It terrified us when they were the ones who put the first man into space. And then the Berlin Wall, that great symbol of hatred and oppression that great scar down the middle of a nation, that great barrier that divided families and friends for 28 years was just in a few weeks torn down, destroyed, together with the wicked rulers who had so oppressed the people. The best picture of the wall is the next one just a scar, a mark on the ground where it once stood. God can raise up and destroy nations when and how He wishes. And when you're living in your times, it seems inconceivable that it could happen. The most powerful nation in Palestine never existed again just 20 years after Amos prophesied its doom. The lost tribes of Israel but when God says enough is enough then that's what happens. God is patient James tells us of his patience We must wait for his judgment, especially we who are oppressed. But we who are arrogant must never think it couldn't happen to us. But friends, we're not gathered here this morning as Australians. We're gathered here this morning as Christians. And God's salvation adds responsibility to Christians. See this is Amos's point in chapter 3 verse 2 when God says you only have I known of all the families of the earth therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's not therefore I will never punish you, you can go ahead and live any way you like, no, it's the reverse. And our salvation doesn't mean that we can now ignore God's word just the reverse. It means we've got to pay even more careful attention to what God says. The New Testament puts it this way, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that's the law of Moses, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? They had the law of Moses and suffered condemnation. We have something far greater than the law of Moses. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who are given much, much will be required. And so, We cannot tolerate amongst ourselves and those who meet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ a slack attitude to sinfulness, the oppression of the poor, the living in luxury while others suffer. We cannot tolerate amongst ourselves a fast and loose attitude to sexual immorality and a disregard of God's holiness. We cannot tolerate among ourselves a return to idolatry and an acceptance of false religions of this world. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world by a man whom he is raised from the dead, the man who died for our sins and has called us into his kingdom. This call into his kingdom, this forgiveness that he has won for us, doesn't mean a hardening of our hearts to our sinfulness, just the reverse. It means a greater care that we bear his name faithfully. Bringing glory, not shame, to him who died for us. Proclaiming his name to all the nations, not only in words that we preach, but in the ways in which we live. That they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. For remember the commandment that still applies we must not bear the name of the Lord in vain call ourselves Australians we will live and die with the arrogance of this nation call ourselves Christians we must not bear that name in vain let's pray Heavenly Father we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that he has won for us and for the justice that he brings to this world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that every one of us in this room might know of your forgiveness through your son's death. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that he would come again and bring your final judgment to all this world. But Lord, in such prayer, we pray for your spirit to be at work in our hearts, moving us to be obedient to you, filling us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control that we may live our lives in your name bringing praise and glory to you before all peoples